Thank you, choir, Denise, Caleb, that was beautiful. Nate, thank you, Aaron, well done. Denise doesn't want this told, but she, did she write that? Is that right, Aaron? Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, original song. <laughs> Denise's mother is here from the Shoals area of Alabama, Willa Dean, we've been praying for you and the, the, the loss of your husband uh, last year, and it's been a tough year, but the Lord is good, and we were reminded of his promises. One of his promises is that if we humble ourselves, that he will hear from heaven when we pray, and that he will heal our land. So thank you, uh, choir and Denise, for that beautiful promise, reminder. Uh, another redhead in our choir today, Justine. Justine's here from Montreal. If you see a car with a Montreal license plate, she's here as a singer-songwriter uh, doing some writing in Nashville uh, for a few months uh, with us. I'm glad to see she's joined the choir as well. Uh, thank you, Aaron. It's hard in a pandemic to do choir well with masks and all these uh, rules and regulations, but uh, so neat to see that uh, we're, we're doing our best to worship the Lord and to love each other well by keeping one another safe. The experts, our COVID advisory team, tell us that masks help mitigate the risk uh, along with distancing and everything else. So we're trying to do what we can to uh, keep each other safe and love each other well as we continue to worship the Lord. Uh, poor Asha, do you heard him say the government has forbidden them from worshiping together uh, during this time and it's really hurting his soul. You can tell he longs to gather with God's people and to celebrate. Uh, if you have questions about COVID stuff, and I'm, I don't, I'm a theologian and a pastor, I'm not a medical professional, but we have some medical professionals who are here. Um, if you want to talk to one of the members of our COVID advisory team, maybe you're on the fence about vaccines. I, I get it. There's a lot of concerns that I don't understand, but we have some really smart godly, humble people who are willing to talk to you. Um, so after the service, I'm gonna ask Jerry and, and your team, if you'll be just down here after the service, and if you wanna come and speak to them, preferably with a mask on, <laughs> they would love to help you answer any questions that you might have um, about COVID stuff. And, and they don't have all the answers, but they are uh, very intelligent and they're on the front lines of a lot of this stuff. So it's great to have them as a resource and I wanna make them available to you as well. We're going to continue today walking through Isaiah, and our series for September is I Need a Hero, the One Who Comes to Rescue. Remember, this section of Isaiah is spoken to God's people who are in exile. They're in a really tough place, and the best thing that God can tell them is that he's sending a hero to save them. The, the most comforting word that God could give them is that I'm going to save you. I'm going to send my special servant to come and, and save you and bring you back home. Sometimes when you're going through a tough place or you find yourself in a lonely season or like in exile, you just need someone to come and, and put their hand on your shoulder and tell you, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. But you need them to mean it when they say it's gonna be okay. And God means it because he's in charge. He can say it's gonna be okay because he's sovereign. He's telling us here in this section of Isaiah, look, it's gonna be okay. Once you guys have gone through the, the fire of refining and of judgment, you're gonna get to go home. I'm gonna rescue you. I'm gonna send you a hero. I'm gonna kick the Babylonians out and you will be saved. And most importantly, he says, I'm gonna send this servant 
to you, who's going to save you from that which you cannot save yourself, your own brokenness. I'm going to send a hero unlike any other. He's not going to come with violence. He's not going to come with a big army. He's going to have my spirit in him, and he will accomplish my will full of truth and full of grace. So we've already seen uh, two of the uh, what theologians refer to as the servant songs in Isaiah, these uh, passages in Isaiah that describe the hero who's going to come to us. It's kind of a mysterious figure. The servant doesn't have a name. Uh, we don't understand all about him, but we do know that it is going to be the Messiah, the anointed one, who is going to rescue God's people. So today we're going to look in the third song, and we've seen in the first two songs that God told us the servant would be a king, that he's going to rule over not just Israel, but the entire world, even as far as the coastlands. In these next two songs, we're going to see that the servant is not just some superhero who comes to, to rule, but he's a suffering servant. He's a servant unlike any other. He's obedient even unto death on a cross. He's going to be the obedient servant of the Lord who suffers greatly, and yet through his suffering, he somehow wins. We don't have time to go through all of chapter 50, but I wanted to look at a few verses of this third servant song before we jump into chapter 51 today. So let's pick the text up right where we left off last week. You see in, in verse 3 of chapter 50, there's in quotes that the servant has quit speaking, and now we hear a new voice speak in verse 4. So let's pick it up in chapter 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, says the servant. He's learned. He's full of truth. He speaks the words of God that I may know how to sustain with a word, a word of truth, a word of grace, him who is weary. God doesn't come to dominate us. He comes, he says, a bruised reed I will not break, right? A, a, a snuffed candle he will not snuff out. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Again, he's learned. He's hearing from the Lord himself. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. He's obedient. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. What does that remind you of? The crucifixion. How perfectly did Jesus Christ fulfill the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament? But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I've not been disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. The Messiah speaks these words knowing that even in his suffering, he's going to triumph. This is very unusual. This is not like what we would expect from most heroes. How is it that he can turn the other cheek literally and yet not be disgraced? Philippians 2 tells us that at the name of Jesus, who, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be held onto and exploited, but became obedient even unto death, but at the, his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord, Master, the Boss, to the glory of God the Father. Just a beautiful passage uh, from Isaiah chapter 50 of our hero, a good picture of the Messiah who comes to save us. So what do we do with that? What do we do now? The entire book of Isaiah has been telling us in the words of Sister Act 2, to wake up and pay attention. That's what we're going to see here. If you have that in your head now, I'm, I'm sorry. No, I'm not. I'm not sorry at all. It's great. It's a great song. Have you fallen asleep? Have you fallen asleep? Are you going through life and you, you need to wake up and pay attention? Have you ever fallen asleep somewhere you shouldn't have? We had a kid in, in my math class, I remember in high school, who would always fall asleep just every day. I don't know if he just didn't sleep well at home or something, but our teacher, Mr. Davis, would just keep lecturing. He would notice that the kid was asleep and he'd just walk over to where the kid was and suddenly he'd raise his voice real loud like that and, and the kid would jump and we'd all laugh and then the teacher would just keep talking as if nothing happened. Uh, it would just keep going. I don't know how people in New York do it, but have you seen people take naps on their commute in the subway? That's amazing to me. I, I just I don't trust myself uh, that much, and I've, I've seen it backfire, okay, when uh, we were on a college mission trip, and my group of like five or six, I was going out to our work site, and we're college students, so we didn't have like, you know, chaperone adult with us, and it was up to us to navigate, and the, the system's pretty easy to navigate the, the subway in, in, in New York, and uh, we were just talking, it was like our third or fourth day, and we were just having a good time on the train, and I said, oh, this is our stop, let's go. And so we, the doors opened and we jumped off. And then I kind of looked around to make sure everybody was there. And then I said, where's Natalie? And we saw the doors close and we looked and there's Natalie with her head on the side, her mouth wide open, ah, she's sleeping. And we see the train just take off and poor Natalie is a freshman, you know, she didn't know what was going on and she probably slept through two or three stops before she finally got above ground, was able to use her phone and, and call us and figure out where she was and, and try to get reconnected. Uh, it's not good to fall asleep somewhere where you shouldn't. It's easy though to be lulled to sleep by the world that we live in. We live in this time where we're inundated with distractions that prevent us from seeing reality as it actually is. Technology has made it really easy to go through life without really stopping to wake up and pay attention. You know, the word amusement, it, it means ah, muse, muse is thought, ah is without. Ah, amusement means without thinking. It's easy to amuse ourselves to death. It's easy to stay amused to the point where we don't actually wake up and pay attention to what's going on. This past week, Rolling Stone magazine published an updated list of the top 500 songs. Did you see that, Logan? The top 500, I know you would. The top 500 songs of all time, uh, an updated list. And at number 28, they have the song Once in a Lifetime by Talking Heads from 1980. And I was reading about it, and the lead singer, David Byrne, New York City, kind of a nerdy, weird, uh, you know, band, he said that the song is about being aware and, and being intentional about life. He said it this way, we're largely unconscious. You know, we operate half awake or on autopilot and end up, whatever, with a house and a family and a job and everything else and we haven't really stopped to ask ourselves, how did I get here? I thought that was pretty prophetic of, of David Byrne. That's precisely the kind of life 
that Isaiah is warning us against. He wants us to wake up and pay attention. If God has truly sent a hero, if he's really done this to rescue us, we ought to wake up and pay attention to him. We ought to consider who that hero is and how we might be saved by him. So I've broken our text into these three parts. Again, in the, in the mighty words of Whoopi Goldberg, wake up and pay attention. If you want to be somebody, if you want to go somewhere, you better wake up and pay attention. First, we're going to see a comforting word of reassurance. We're still God's people. He's not forgotten us. He's not forsaken us. It's going to be okay. And then in, in part two, we're going to see, that's, that's part one, we're going to hear God tell us that his judgment on us is over, that his wrath has been poured out on us for a season, and now it's moving on to someone else. And then finally, we're going to hear his call to get up, wash our face, brush our teeth, and get going. Let's start with part one in Isaiah chapter 51, verses 9 to 11. This is the remnant. This is God's people speaking here, and, and they're kind of whining. They're complaining because they think that God is the one who needs to wake up and pay attention. So let's hear the word of the Lord from verse 9, chapter 51. Awake, they say to God. Awake. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, that's Egypt, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing? Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. These people are telling God, you're the one who needs to wake up. They're complaining that, remember all the cool stuff you used to do, God? The problem is that we all tend to remember the good old days as better than the reality. We remember them through rose-colored memories that are not the reality of those good old days. Faced with the tyranny of the urgent present, we often long for days past that we think were better than they actually were. God's people here try to remind God of how he brought his people out of uh, Egypt, how he cut Rahab, Egypt, into pieces, and how he led them across on dry ground and cut down the Egyptian army. Remember that, God? That was so great. Why don't you do that again? But here's the thing. God never sleeps. He never rests. He never needs a nap like I do sometimes in the afternoons. <laughs> he doesn't need that. He never shuts an eye because he is God. He never needs that kind of rest. Look at God's reply. It's, it's a gracious reply in, in verse 12 and verse 13. I, I am he who comforts you. They said, awake, awake. He said, I, I, <laughs> I'm here. He's giving them the double answer. I'm he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who's made like grass? And have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor. When he sets himself to destroy, and where is the wrath of the oppressor? It's the same old problem they've had for generations. They fear man, and they don't fear God. 
They're so worried about the immediate situation that they're in that they don't understand that God is sovereign, that he remains good and he remains in control. And once again, these people have shifted their gaze horizontally instead of vertically. So God reminds them, I'm still here. I'm still holding everything together and sustaining you with every breath that you have. Where is the wrath of the oppressor is God's way of asking us, what can these bad guys do to you? Are you really afraid of them? You think they're going to win? You think that, that they're actually going to prevail? You think you should be afraid of them and afraid of the future? You have nothing to fear. God tells us the number one commandment in all of scripture is do not fear. There's a lot of fear in our world, isn't there? God gives us his own answer in the next verse, verse 14. He who's bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. Anybody feel bowed down? You don't need to raise your hand, but anybody feel bowed down today? A bruised reed he will not snap, he will not break. If you feel bowed down today, hear this word of comfort. God graciously reassures those who are overwhelmed by life, which are most days for me. He never gives up on us. Look at verse 16. I've put my words in your mouth. We have God's word. We have God's own word that, that, that should constantly be on our lips. And I've covered you in the shadow. Verse 16, we have that, Gabe? I bet we do. We don't have it? Don't worry about it. He's covered us in the shadow of his good presence. We as God's people have always been part of his plan to make all things new. The people of God are not an afterthought in his plan to redeem this creation. How then could he ever leave us? How then could he ever forsake us if we are an integral part of what he's doing? I know there's people here today who need to hear this word of assurance. God has promised never to give up on us to never leave us, to never forsake us. That leads us to the second section. Part two is, is God showing us that our punishment is over, that his wrath has, has come and gone. It's been a tough season. It's been a really brutal season for pastors. I, I feel like I called you know, some pastor friends of mine, telling them, I'm in a tough place. And they're like, you think you're in a tough place? I'm in a worse place. And I'm like, no, that's not what I needed right now. I needed you to talk me off the ledge. And I ended up talking them off the ledge. You know, it's like we're doing that back and forth all the time now. God is gracious and I'm, I'm convinced it's, it's going to be okay. But it's a scary time to be a pastor. It's a scary time to be a doctor. I, I asked a, a lady who's a nurse in our church who's been a nurse for 40 years. Is this the hardest time of your career? She said, Absolutely. By far, it's the hardest time of my career. And going through those tough times, God doesn't sugarcoat it. He sees us. He knows what we're going through. And he starts out in this second section saying to his children who are in exile as slaves, he says, I'm not asleep, but you are. It's time to get up. It's time to wake up and pay attention. Look at verse 17 through 20. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she's born. There's none to take her 
by the hand among all the sons she's brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They're full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. It's been a tough time. God's not blind to our suffering. He feels it deeply. He's like a good parent who has to punish their child. We mean it when we tell our kids, this is gonna hurt you more than it hurts me, right? Parents feel that suffering. But then the Lord gives his children this good word that their time for drinking the cup of wrath is over. And it's time for the Babylonians to get one of those 60 ounce big gulps of God's wrath now. Look at verses 21 to 23. Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, you who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I've taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. The Babylonians who have exploited God's people as property, as slaves from uh, the last 40 years, he's saying it's time for them now to get a big old taste of my wrath. God's a just God. God doesn't let things slide. The Bible says he will by no means clear the guilty. We don't have to worry about whether or not people will pay for their crimes. And I was reminded, you know, I always get so mad when I see someone cut in line or, or, or cheat in some way, it just drives me nuts. But we're told in Romans chapter 12, it's not up to us to handle it, that God is going to take care of it. Romans 12, nine says, beloved, let love be genuine and hold, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what's good. Then he says, he says, do never avenge yourselves that God, it, vengeance belongs to the Lord. That brings us to our final section, the so what part of the sermon. God tells us here in part three that it's time to get up and get going, to get out the door. Look at Isaiah chapter 52, verses one and two. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Remember, they told him to wake up and put on his strength. He says, no, 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 I never lost my strength. You guys get up and put on your strength, which is my strength. Oh, Zion, put on your beautiful garments. Oh, Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O oh, Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck. O captive daughter of Zion. He's telling us to shake off the bonds of the oppressor, that it's time to get going and stop wallowing in self-pity. I don't know about you, but in my fallen nature, I'm prone to whine and complain. Poor me, I'm a victim. Life is hard for me and feel sorry for myself. But I love what John Piper says in his book, The Dangerous Duty of Delight. He says, the nature and depth of human pride are illuminated by comparing boasting to self-pity because both are manifestations of 
pride. Boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I've achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I've suffered so much. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. Boasting sounds self-sufficient. Self-pity sounds self-sacrificing. The primary experience of the Christian hedonist, someone who takes pleasure in God, that's what Piper says, is one of helplessness and desperation and longing. When a helpless child is being swept off his feet by the undercurrent at the beach and his father sweeps him up just in time, he doesn't boast, he hugs. I love that. When the good father sweeps that poor helpless child up in his arms when the current's carrying him away, the kid doesn't say, look at me, I'm awesome. Neither does the kid whine and complain, poor me, I'm the only victim in the world here. Instead, he just hugs. He just wraps his arm around his father's neck. If we're gonna wake up and get going, we've gotta let go of our pride. We've gotta let go of our pride in suffering even. We have no reason for pride in the first place. Look at verse three. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. I love how Ray Ortland says it in his commentary. The community of redemption is open to all alike because God refuses every penny of our self-righteous moral currency. Isn't that good? Religion is all about trying to be good enough to please God. But the gospel is that we were hopelessly helpless like a little kid being swept off his feet in the current and our strong good father came and snatched us up. God points to a day when people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will gather at his throne together, redeemed by his grace alone, and we're going to know him intimately. Look at verse 6. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. Until that day, though, God sends forth his messengers to that beautiful city, to proclaim the good news. Look at verse seven. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, your God wins, your God's in charge. You know, Friday night was, was rainy and gross, kind of like this whole weekend has been. Our family's plans got changed. It was future Burroughs night at Hillsborough High School. They had all these things for kids that were planned. And uh, instead, we, you know, ordered in and watched a movie, and that, that was fine. And Morgan made brownies, and Isaiah came down from getting a shower, and he, he said, I smell brownies. I said, your mom made brownies. And he ran towards Judah May, and he said, guys, good news, good news. Mom made brownies. <laughs> I was thinking about this text, and I was like, he loves to proclaim good news. He actually used the phrase, good news. I got good news. Mom made brownies. We have good news, don't we? And it's fun to proclaim good news. I pray that Woodmont would, would have a revival of, of the Holy Spirit that would lead to evangelism 
in such a way that we proclaim the good news that's so much better than brownies. Brownies are awesome, but salvation of the Lord is infinitely better than any brownie you've ever had. When the good news arrives at the city, the watchmen rejoice. Verse 8, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Then the whole city, even the nasty, run-down, broken parts, burst into song together. They can't help but sing. In verse 9, break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed, he's bought back Jerusalem without money. And the good news, it's not just for the city, it's for the world. It's for the world. Look at verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This beautiful vision compels us to get out of our holy huddle. The church is not a country club. It's not a refuge from the world. Let's close with verse 11 and 12. Depart. Depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you. And the God of Israel will be your rear guard. You're not going out panicked, you're going out in confident hope to proclaim good news. Church is not supposed to be like our home. Our home is a sanctuary. It's a refuge from the Lord. Church is to be a filling station. Church is to be a commissioning, sending agency. It's where you should come to get filled up with God's word and with praises and with worship and with fellowship and then sent out. Every time I give a benediction, it's a commissioning to go from this place and be God's hands and feet wherever you may go, whether that's Green Hills Grill for lunch or whether it's Kroger for afternoon grocery shopping, but wherever you go, that you are God's body. God will go with us. All of life can be a holy pilgrimage when we go out to play our part in God's good, redemptive purposes for the world. But first, you gotta wake up and pay attention. We're still God's people. He's never going to give up on us. He's poured out his wrath on us, and now it's over. He's poured it out on Christ now. And now we don't have to drink that cup, so let's wake up and get going and pay attention. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for all you've done for us in Christ. You have sent a hero to rescue us, to redeem us. Such news is too wonderful for us to comprehend. But I pray that when we leave this place today, that we'd wake up, that we wouldn't be lulled to sleep by football or by lunch or by anything else, but that we would understand that you have made us new from the inside out. You've brought us from death to life, and you haven't done it just so we can go to heaven. You've done it so that we can be a part of what you're doing in the world and what you're doing in Dominica in rebuilding homes and churches, in the food pantry every Tuesday that feeds hundreds of people each month who are food insecure and who need to know that you provide because you love them. God, in Celebrate Recovery, where the chains of addiction are broken by the gospel of your goodness and your grace, 
through the fellowship that inspires believers and encourages them, through intercessory prayer for those who are sick and struggling. God, in all those ways, you are using Woodmont, you're using Christians to advance your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, help us to wake up and pay attention to what you're doing and then get up and get going. God, help us to remember that going to church isn't what Christianity is about. It's not at all what it's about. It's about being transformed through your grace so that we can go out from church in order to be your hands and feet to those who desperately need your body. God, we thank you for never leaving us, never forsaking us, for making us your special children, your special family, who is sent into the world to be a transforming agent in the world. Lord, we love you. We pray this in the high and holy name of our hero, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.